Last week, we began to explore Jesus' promise that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And hidden in this passage here in John chapter 8, just a few verses later, Jesus gives us an incredible promise that should change how we live. It's a promise that's designed to set us free from fear. Fear is the opposite of freedom. Fear is the tool of the enemy. And fear is what keeps many believers from experiencing the abundant life that God has for us. And Jesus, in this passage in John chapter 8, addresses our biggest fear. Here's what he says in John 8, verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Well, that's an incredible promise. It's one we need to explore and understand what it exactly means. He begins by using this repeated phrase, truly, truly. And in the original language, in the, in the Greek language, it is the word amen. And it means an unshakable truth. It actually comes from a, a Hebrew picture of a tent stake, of um, a stake that's driven into the ground that anchors a tent so it cannot be shaken by the wind or by the storms. It means it's something that you can stake your life on. It's an absolute truth. In the New Testament, the word is found in 127 verses, and some of them more than once, just like we see here in John 8:51. Jesus frequently repeated the word in his use of it. In 76 of these verses, amen comes at the beginning of a sentence. And in each case, when he does that, it's a new point, it's a new truth, a new reality that God is speaking to us. In 48 other verses, amen occurs at the end of a sentence. And in these cases, it is humanity speaking and responding to a truth about God. Amen, yes, that's a truth we can trust. In other words, we internalize that truth to ourselves. And when we internalize God's truth, we take it into ourselves and say, yes, that is true, it empowers us to be able to live as if it's true. Let's look at it again in John 8, 51. Jesus says, truly, truly, he's saying, this is something you can stake your life on. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he's talking about spiritual death, eternal death, isn't he? separation from God because of sin. Now listen carefully. You and I, unless Christ returns in our lifetime, will die physically. But I do not believe we will experience death because real death is separation from God's presence, God's goodness, and God's grace. Now that's hard for us to get our minds around because it seems so separated from us. We, we understand and think primarily in the physical realm, not in spiritual terms. But there is something that we physically um, encounter every single day, or at least most days, and yet we do not experience it. Let me use this as a, a little bit of an example that maybe will help connect the dots. Every day, you encounter something that you do not experience. It's sleep. We experience dreams from sleep, we experience the rest that our body gets and our mind gets from sleep. 
But the actual sleep we don't experience because we're unconscious. It's what it simply means is that we're not experiencing that in a real way. We experience its effects, we experience the rest that it gives to us, but the actual sleep we don't experience. I think in a similar way, that's what Jesus is talking about. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the scripture often refers to death, especially in the life of a believer, of one who trusts in Christ, as sleep. We experience the effects of it, the benefits, the rest, the transformation, but not the death itself. Here's the core meaning of this promise. What it means is that we will not experience death as a separation from God because Jesus has already experienced it for us. In physical death, there's a separation of the soul and spirit from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the spirit from the active presence of God. Yes, God is omnipresent. He is, he is everywhere. But to be separated from God is to be separated from His grace and His goodness and face only His holy wrath. That's the separation that death causes. That's what Jesus is talking about. This is what Jesus actually did for us. Jesus stood in our place. He took the separation, the wrath of God, and bore what we deserved upon Himself. This is why Jesus on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was bearing our separation from God. The full weight of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. God the Father turned his back on Jesus the Son for you and for me. But because Jesus took our place, we can only experience the shadow of death, not its true substance. That should free us to live lives of bold faith and obedience because we can never die. We are safe in God's hands. That promise should change how we live. It should set us free from the fear of death. What's more is that God promises to be with us even in the transition of death, even in the physical experience. Let's look at Psalms 48 verse 14, that this God is our God. To the age and forever, He does lead us even over death. Isn't that an incredible promise? Understand that there's a difference between death and the process of dying. Death is often preceded by suffering, but even in that suffering, there is a radically uh, different experience for the believer because God is with us. He promises to lead us over death. None of us want to suffer. The transition from this existence to eternal life through the change of physical death can be incredibly difficult. Death is unnatural. We were created to live, not created to die. Sin is what brought death and with it, the pain, grief, brokenness that accompanies physical death. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. For we know if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. 
if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we will be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has promised us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This passage here in, in Corinthians is an incredible promise. What it's saying is that we all long for eternity, for fullness of life. And even as our physical bodies decay, the tent begins to wear out, we have a greater and greater longing to be swallowed up in even more life. And that's what God does for us. So in the life of a believer, physical death is simply the transformation from this existence, from this tent, to an eternal heavenly dwelling with God that is spiritual, that is emotional, that is relational, and that, yes, at the resurrection is physical as well. Jesus says it this way. He gives us another perspective in John 16, verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into this world. The same is true for us spiritually, even when we go through death. The pain, the suffering of this life cannot be compared to the glories that we have with God. That's the promise that God is giving us here. But in order for us to truly understand all that's going on, we need to see what Jesus anchors this promise on. So let's go to the scripture now and let's look in John chapter 8 and see what Jesus is telling us in this face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. 
I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this, they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. We're here in this encounter with Jesus where the religious leaders are challenging Jesus and trying to understand what he's saying. They become incredibly upset at what Jesus says when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And we'll look exactly what that means in, in, just, a, in just a bit, but it is the key to understanding this passage. Two times in these few verses, Jesus begins with truly, truly, or amen, amen. What I'm about to tell you is a truth you can stake your life on. Here towards the end of the passage, he says, truly, truly, I tell you before Abraham was, I am. He's identifying himself as God, as the great I am. He is the one who can, has God's personal name. 
because in the Hebrew understanding, I am that I am, is how God revealed his name to Moses at the burning bush. It is his holy, beautiful name. This is why the religious leaders become so upset, because from their perspective, Jesus is taking the name of the Lord in vain. But he certainly wasn't, because he has every right to claim that name, because it's who he is. It's his nature. He is the great I am. Now, what does that mean to you and I personally? Before we explore more of the depth of the passage, I want to help you connect with the meaning of the great I am in a way that you can make it personal and understand what it truly means to you and to me. Jesus is the great I am. And here's what it means. He is the one who knows our past, who holds our present, and inhabits our future. He promises you life eternal if you keep His word. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, there's a condition there. Remember back in verse 51, He said, If you keep my word, you will never see death. What does it mean to keep His word? Well, first of all, we must hear His word. In, in John chapter 5, verse 24, Again, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. To keep God's word, we must hear it. We must listen. If there's anything that we need to learn to do better, it's to listen. To listen to others in our conversations but especially to listen to God. In order to keep His word, we must first listen. Secondly, we must listen and then believe. That's what he's talking about here. The second thing he says is to keep God's word, we must believe His word. It's not enough just to allow the words to come into our ears and to hear them or to read them off the page. We must believe. And what that means is that we must live like what Jesus says is true. Thirdly, to keep Jesus' word, we must obey what he says. We must listen, we must believe, and it must result in a change of direction that leads to obedience, to obeying his commands. When we do that, we have nothing to fear, not even death. It is the safest place in all of the universe because right then when we keep His Word, when we listen, believe, and obey, we are in the center of God's will. And that's the safest place to be no matter what we're experiencing. The reason Jesus says that we can trust Him with His promise is because He is the great I Am. The one who knows our past, holds our present, and inhabits our future. What does that mean? What does this great I am truly mean? Well, it means, first of all, that Jesus is eternal God. Listen to what it says in Isaiah. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, his name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 57 verse 15. God inhabits eternity. And time is much like a river. 
much like the Vlatava that you see over my shoulder, it flows from one point to another. In fact, it's never ever the same. It's constantly changing. That's what time does. Now, just in front of me that you can't quite see, but I'll turn the camera so you can see, is the great metronome here in Prague, a gigantic mechanical metronome that occupies a symbolic spot on the map of Prague. It was right on this spot that a, a huge monument to Joseph Stalin overlooked the city during the days of communism. It was then torn down and the seven-ton metronome was installed in 1991. And it was meant to be a symbol of a new era. There's a plaque here that says, in time, all things pass. And that's true. That's how we experience time. But God is outside of time. That's so important for us to understand. It's hard for us to get our minds around how God is outside of time. That means see, he can be in the past, the present, and the future, all at what we would consider the same time. He inhabits eternity. Eternity is not just future. It, is, it means to be outside of time, but able to enter time at any point. God is infinite in regard to time. In fact, Psalm 90 verse 2 says it this way, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It means that he's not limited in any way by time. Time is a created entity, just as space is. Time is measurable, but God is not. God has chosen to interact within time. And that's why the scripture tells us that at the exact time, at the right time, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, verse 6. Jesus died at just the right time to fulfill prophecy, but his death applies to those who came before and to those who come after. This is how a person from the Old Testament is saved by faith as well. They were looking forward to when God would provide the perfect sacrifice, the one who would take away their sin. They had their faith in God that he would act at, a, at the perfect time to be able to provide for them salvation. In the same way, those of us who are in the New Testament era, we look back at what Jesus has done. We put our faith in what he accomplished on the cross and that's how we are saved. We are putting our faith in the person of Jesus Christ who is eternal, who stepped into time and willingly laid down his life for us. Here's how Hebrews chapter 10 puts it. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you understand what this means? God's plan from the very beginning was our redemption, to rescue you and I from sin through the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus Christ stepped into time to accomplish God's purpose and will, but he's not limited by time. From our perspective, he is allowing time to run its course, but God exists in an eternal now. 
Seeing God from above our circumstance is the practice of faith. It's what allows us to be set free from fear. Fear, in essence, is putting your faith in the what ifs instead of in the great I am. Let me say that to you again. Fear is placing your faith in the what ifs rather than in the great I am. The one who is eternally here and now with you and also inhabits your future and knows your past. Martin Luther made an interesting observation in his Table Talk series. He said this, he said, God and the devil take opposite tactics in regard to fear. The Lord first allows us to become afraid that he might relieve our fears and comfort us. But here's what Luther says secondly. The devil, on the other hand, first makes us feel secure in our pride and in our sin that we might later be overwhelmed with fear and despair. So what is your greatest fear? As you think about that, it'll reveal to you some of the things that you value most. Fear reveals our true treasure. That's why we're afraid to lose it. Look at our fear. What is it telling us about ourselves? And what is it telling us about our faith in God? Secondly, fear reveals where we trust God the least. Because we're trying to control something that is beyond our grasp, we're trying to take God's place and we don't truly trust that He'll show up. So what are the things that we're not trusting God with? That's ultimately what our fears reveal. And it's important for us to ex examine that and be honest with ourselves and honest with the Lord. Because ultimately, fear is like carrying around an extra weight with us all the time. It wears on you and limits you because you're trying to hold on to what only God can hold. What he tells us to do is to simply put it down, to trust him and to allow him to comfort us, to strengthen us, to show us his presence, his goodness and his power. We need to face the what ifs directly. In fear, we tend to hold on to all of the possibilities, not just one. But if we narrow it down and say, okay, what I'm most afraid will happen is this, then we're able to take that and explore it and say, okay, if that does happen, what difference does it make that God promises to be with me, that God promises to be for me? You see, He can meet that greatest fear. Take your fears to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm afraid of blank. And you fill in that blank. If it's something of the future, remember that God is already there. He already inhabits our future. No matter what happens, He is there. That's what He promises in Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When we face our fears, and we are able to then bring them to the Lord, we can then choose to trust God in that area, to pray continually until we are able to place the fear in His hands, to seek Him, to seek His promises. In fact, that's the most important thing you can do. Take those fears, identify what they are, and then go to the Scripture 
and see what God says about them. If you need help finding verses that address a particular fear, feel free to write to me. I'll send you verses from the scripture about what God says about those fears. Here's a great promise. Psalm 34 verse 4 says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. That's his promise. If we seek him, if we keep seeking him, if we pursue him, he promises to deliver us from all of our fears. Jesus knows your past. Every failure, every sin, every rebellion, everything that is hidden from everyone else, he already knows. And knowing everything about you, he loves you. And he simply says, trust me. Trust me with your past. Secondly, the great I am, Jesus, holds our present. He has promised never to leave you, never to forsake you, no matter what we face. Thirdly, Jesus, the great I am, inhabits our future. He has promised to complete the good work he began in you and to bring it to fulfillment in the day of Christ Jesus. So what do we have to be afraid of? Jesus is the great I am. He is the eternal God. He is already there in everything that we fear and face. Right now, Jesus is calling you and I to trust him more, to place our biggest fear into his hands. The truth is, we can't hold on to it anyway. If your greatest fear is the fear of loss, what is it you're afraid to lose? Because here's the truth. You cannot lose Jesus Christ. He holds the whole world in his hands. And here is his promise in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, we really can't lose because Jesus holds us and he holds all of the world in his hands. Is your greatest fear the fear of failure? Are you afraid that you won't be able to be successful? That your plans, your dreams, your hopes will all come to nothing? Here's God's promise. Philippians 1 verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If we trust in Him, He will make us successful in accomplishing His purpose. It may not be the specific dream or idea that you have or plan that you have for your life, but you cannot fail because Jesus has called you to a greater purpose than your dream, and He promises to complete that. Later on, Paul writes these words in Philippians 4 verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him, through Christ who strengthens me. That's God's promise. We don't need to be fearful about failure. What about rejection? Who are you afraid will not love you, who will turn against you? Here's God's promise. John 6, verse 37, he says this, 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. We have a tendency to live for the approval of others. But if you and I are in Christ Jesus, He promises to never reject us. We are absolutely secure. So quit living for the applause of others and rest in the acceptance of Jesus Christ. Finally, what about the fear of the unknown? What are you afraid will happen in the future? God gives us incredible promises. And and Jesus, especially in Luke chapter 12, tells us this. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses or barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than these birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What fears do you need to let go of today? Jesus Christ is the great I Am. He is with you. He goes before you. Don't allow fear to keep you from seeing God display who He really is, His true identity in and through your life. Romans 8 verse 15 says it this way, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and as daughters by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. All through John chapter 8, Jesus is trying to show people the Father. He wants the religious leaders to come to faith in God the Father, and He wants us as His followers to rest in the Father and in His love, the Father who takes great pleasure in us. Fear is living as if God isn't going to show up. And yet God loves us and gives us His great and precious promises. Faith is living like the great I am is right here, right now with you, and will be there with you tomorrow and every moment after that. That's the promise that we have. When Jesus says, truly, truly, He's saying, you can stake your life on these promises. I've already defeated your greatest fear, which is death. And truly, truly, I am the great I am. I know your past. 
I died for you knowing everything. I hold your present. I promised I will never leave you or forsake you. And I already inhabit your future. He has promised to complete the good work he began in you. We are blessed in Christ. Don't let fear hold you back from living for God, from a bold faith, a bold trust in who Jesus is and in what he wants to do. He has promised that in him, we will not even taste death. He will carry us over the physical encounter with death and give us life eternal. Yes, our bodies will die, but the real you, who you truly are, your personality, the value that you have, that is eternally secure in Christ Jesus. And even our bodies, he promises to bring back to life. It is time for us to live like Jesus is the great I am, the one who knows everything about us, knows our past, holds our present, and inhabits our future. Would you put your trust in him today? If you have spiritual questions, if you're just wrestling, if you need help finding God's promises to be able to, to build up your faith, would you contact us? Would you send us an email, put a comment there on Facebook or YouTube? We would love an opportunity to walk alongside of you and show you how God is for you and with you and what Jesus Christ has done for you. Thank you for joining us today. We pray God's richest blessings upon you and that you and I, from this moment on, will be able to live free of fear.